Drowning on dry land. The fifth episode, parts 10 and 11. Part 10. So you want to be a lunatic. I was free of the hospital and back home with our prison Taco Jones satisfied and everyone tucked in for the night. For the first time in almost two weeks, I slept in our bedroom. In the morning, we got ready for our Saturday ritual of yard sales. But it didn't take long for me to start spinning off center again. Sansony was unnerving me, asking too many questions as she struggled to understand what had happened. I believe she wanted to know if she was somehow at fault and kept probing. I arrived at the bizarre conclusion that the only way I'd get any peace was to stop talking to her. So, I pretended I'd lost my voice. Yes, it was ridiculous. Feigning hoarseness, we headed out to meet Talia and Adam. He is finally discharged and we all feel good. Adam and I arrive at Grant Park Coffee House, grab everyone a coffee, and sit on the patio waiting for Dad and Sansony. When they arrive, Sansony leaves him, walks over, and tells us that he's lost his voice. He waves me to the bench around the corner. He's whispering and mouthing words for a few moments, and then abruptly starts speaking normally. He tells me that he just didn't want to talk to Sansony in the morning because she was acting really worried about him, so he was pretending to lose his voice. He then tells me that he thinks he needs to go out of town for a couple of weeks to take a break from her. I give him a very worried look and tell him that it sounds like what he was saying a week earlier, before everything went downhill. He tells me it isn't the same thing. Adam and I get in my car to follow him and Sansony in their truck. He stops, gets out, and comes to my window. He says that he understands why it would scare me that he said he wanted to leave town, and not to worry, he feels completely fine, and it isn't the same thing. He didn't mean to frighten me. This type of thing would happen a lot over the course of the crisis. Dad would say something concerning and strange, but would follow it up with, I know how this sounds, I know I sound crazy, you must think I'm crazy, but I promise I'm okay. This was very troubling because I did think he sounded crazy, but didn't think that he would be so self-aware if he actually was out of his mind, so I let lots of strange things slide. The first yard sale was crowded, and right away I felt claustrophobic. I just wanted to get out of there. I crossed the street and stood as far from the other shoppers as I could and still be in sight of my wife and daughter and Adam. So we go ahead to a yard sale. Walking around, Adam and I discuss our feelings that there's definitely something wrong. Adam is adamant that we call GCAL, the Georgia Crisis and Access Line, a mobile unit that will come and assess someone's mental health in crisis. Sansony and I don't think it's a good idea because the GCAL people can't force him to go anywhere. We're worried that if we call them, we'll make him angry and distrustful and the situation will get worse. We get back in our cars to follow him and Sansony to the next yard sale. We didn't quite make it. We get about halfway there and he pulls over again. We pull over behind him and he gets out of his truck. He is really agitated. He can tell that we are all very concerned. He asks us to stop worrying about him. Then he starts walking away from us and throws his keys back at us. He tells us to go to the other yard sale and that he was walking home. 
We convinced him to take his truck home and that we would go to the yard sale and take Santony home after. I made it back home and paced the driveway looking for some way to escape. We drive back to the house because we are uncomfortable with him being alone, but we also don't want to agitate him further by following him after he told us not to. So we get almost all the way there talking to G-Cal in the car on the way. We want to make sure he'd actually gone home. So we pulled over at my student teaching mentor's house, which was right up the street. I knock on her door and ask if she would drive down the road and check if the truck was at the house so he wouldn't see my car. She agrees and comes back to tell us that he was in the driveway by the truck. When we get to the house, he appears calmer. A few weeks earlier, we'd picked up a 60s vintage MG midget for tinkering purposes. On this morning, I couldn't handle being in the house with my wife and daughter hovering about with their worried looks, so I asked Adam to help me with the car. A couple hours passed in the calm that always comes when I work with my hands. As it turned out, that was the high point of the weekend. Through the morning, my brain had been ping-ponging between real and distorted. I wasn't sure what parts I was seeing and hearing were actually there, but I told myself this would pass. I would soon be able to escape my wife, who I still suspected of plotting to murder me. Yes, that was back too. She and I spent most of what was left of Saturday in silence. She tried to give me something to eat, but again, I insisted that she go first. I barely touched dinner. My appetite was waning and wouldn't return for months. We made it through a tense evening by avoiding each other, and I went to sleep once again in the guest room. Just before I drifted off, I thought I heard doors opening and closing and voices in whispers. All of it was coming back. That night, I laid in the darkness and tried to piece together what had transpired. What had gone wrong inside my head? What had I done? And who was the being in my body doing and saying all these crazy things? My brain was continuing to tell me things that were not true. The looks people were giving me, speech that I couldn't decipher, the mad thoughts of conspiracies. It all got worse as time passed, the fissures turning into jagged cracks as I fell deeper into the chasms. And we know that there are those who live with this every day of their lives. For me, it would be three weeks and some change before the madness began to ebb. At this point, though, my ride was just beginning. Some hours later, I woke to a dark house and wandered about, wearing my sunglasses against the shadows. When Sansony got up, we walked in the neighborhood, again in silence. She told me that she would be going to spend the afternoon with Vivian, and after breakfast, she left me with the MG. I sent a text to our neighborhood electrician, I'll call him Aaron, and asked him to come and have a look at some new circuits we needed installed. When we showed up, we discussed the work, and then, again, I switched channels and started cajoling him to take some tools and supplies I didn't want. As with my family, I could detect his alarm at my behavior. In his case, it was like, this guy is nuts. 
he knew there was something wrong and didn't want to upset me, so he accepted a few items that he didn't actually need or want and escaped. We never saw him again. Too bad he did good work. At this point, I had again decided to leave. And this time I wouldn't drive, but get on an airplane somewhere, anywhere. Remember, we're talking about Atlanta, home of the busiest airport in the world. It would be anywhere in the U.S., though, because Sansony had hidden my passport, fearing I'd fly off and end up in some Bulgarian prison. In the early afternoon, she drove to Vivian so I could have some space. I decided to pack while she was gone. I was in the middle of this when I thought I heard a car outside and hid my bag, hurried into the guest room and ducked behind the door, out of sight unless someone came all the way in. I couldn't make out any words, but I guess they were talking about getting rid of me. I'm at dinner when Vivian calls me and says that Sansony was at her house and started getting strange text messages from Dad. I don't remember sending Sansony any text messages that afternoon, but I did. An odd thing since I struggle with typing on my way home and getting it sent off. Though she didn't save them, she says they were strange, full of, I know what you're doing and I'm getting out of here before, and on and on like that. She says they're going to follow Sansony home and watch from afar to make sure she's safe. I tell her that it's okay to call the police if she feels like the situation isn't safe. We got up from the restaurant and run the half mile or so to my mom's house where we left my car. Since I was trying to give everything away, I came up with the idea of turning my truck over to my neighbor across the street. I'll call him Sam in exchange for a ride to the airport. I wasn't going to need it anyway. I went to find him to make the arrangements. Though it was clear by now that I was deranged and had no idea what I was saying or doing, he jumped at the offer. Why wouldn't he? Later, Sansony would remind him that I wasn't in my right mind when I came up with this foolish ploy. He didn't want to hear it. I called him on it, and after that, he and I never spoke again. Another of the casualties of the times. He waited that afternoon while I signed over the title. I handed it to him and then sat on the grass, babbling about Sansony wanting to kill me. He listened without commenting. Then his gaze shifted, and I turned around to see her driving up. She had become so concerned by my text messages that she had decided to come home and have Vivian and Trey follow her so she wouldn't have to face me alone. They were in the car behind her, and they watched as she approached me. Act two of the drama was about to commence. Part 11, and throw away the key. Sansony got out of the car and moved closer, then stopped about 20 feet away. She didn't want me bolting off up the street again. I just wanted her to stop hovering and leave. The old woman who lives next door had come outside, and I started talking to her, hoping Sansony would give up and go. But she wasn't going anywhere. I held up my phone and hit the number nine. I said, I mean it, I'm going to call. She wouldn't budge. I hit one and said, this is your last chance. She took a step closer. I hit the other one. EMS 792, what is the address of your emergency? Woodland Avenue. 
And your name, sir? David Palmer. Okay, Mr. David, tell me exactly what happened. I, I think somebody in my house, I thought it was my wife, but I, I feel like, I, I feel like, I, I feel like they poisoned me. Uh, okay. Was this accidental or intentional? I think it was intentional. Okay. I understand. What? Are, you, are you feeling violent? No, I'm feeling like I'm okay. going to die. Okay. Is your breathing normal for you? No. All right. Well, what did you take or what did they poison you with, sir? I don't know. Okay, sir, when, when did you take it, or when did they give it to you? I don't know. It was, you know. Okay. Was I'm, just, I'm sending the paramedics to help you now. Stay on the line, and I'll tell you exactly what to do next, okay? Okay. Thank you. All right. I didn't know that someone had already called the police, and a car was on the way. When it pulled up and the officer got out, I began to recite a litany of Sansoni's crimes. Meanwhile, Vivian had Italian on the phone. The cop listened to my mad, rambling accusations. I told him I wanted her arrested for some unspecified crime. I continued to proclaim my woes and the dark forces working against me. He spoke to Sansony. He came back to tell me I had to go to the hospital. By now, I had convinced myself that if I left, I'd never be coming home again. But I surrendered. From inside the ambulance, I raised a hand in what I thought would be farewell forever to my wife. A half hour later, I was back in a freezing room, lying on a gurney with nothing on me but a thin sheet. Soon after, Adam and Sansony and I drive to Grady and try to get information. We are told that Dad is in a psychiatric ER and that we cannot go back to see him. No one spoke to me, and the notion that I had done something terribly wrong invaded my brain. Whatever the crime, I was going I to die prison, inside and I would the walls. never get out. I still have no idea where this came from. Maybe a lifetime of small sins being twisted and amped up as if they were plugged into a wall of marshals. Whatever the origin, I came to the conclusion that it was all over for me, and there was no point in being alive and suffering through the decades to come locked in a cage. I conjured visions of a cell at the end of a long corridor and the unbearably sad faces of my daughter and my wife and my future grandchildren during their Sunday visits. I decided that it was time for me to go, as in end my life. I had only one way to accomplish this and weeping over this tragic finale, I twisted a corner of my sheet into a rope and tried to swallow it. I can say now that I'm pleased that I discovered that it's a hard way to do away with yourself, and for all my effort, I couldn't manage to get enough of it down to choke. After a gruesome ten minutes of gagging and weeping and spitting up bile and gagging some more, I stopped, telling myself that I could write great books in stir. The hours passed, with me lost in my broken mind and waiting for the sentence to be carried out. We wait until the early hours of the morning, not getting any information. At some point, a nurse comes out and asks us to get her up to speed about my dad's situation. We explain what happened and are told that we won't see him that night, and to call in the morning for more information. 
in the middle of the night, an attendant showed up and pushed me on the gurney out of the ward and into the elevator and to the very top floor of the building. The huge open room was like a cathedral, the lights turned low beneath a vaulted ceiling and tall windows that overlooked the city. Two dozen cots were spread about the floor with patients on all but one. No one was talking. I laid down and closed my eyes, hoping for some relief, but I couldn't sleep. You know, with my life ending and all. Time passed with me drifting in and out of a waking dream until rosy light began to set the windows aglow. Morning was coming, and it was lovely. My name was called, and I was taken to the hallway where another gurney was waiting. An administrator appeared to explain that I was being taken away because they couldn't treat me there or something like that. I only understood a few words. I asked if I could go home. Please, I just want to go home. She explained that there was no chance of that and that an ambulance was waiting downstairs to transport me. I was asked to sign a paper, an odd thing to request of someone having a complete mental breakdown. In some corner of my mind, I concluded that I was signing away what was left of my existence. I would soon be gone for good. As I was being wheeled out, I saw Christian, who had been so kind to me on my first visit. Looking genuinely sad, he wished me a farewell. He knew what I knew, that I was going down, and neither he nor anyone else had been able to catch me before I fell. <laughs>